0: We are returning to our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We're going to return to chapter 8, verses 1 through 25 this morning. Before we turn to God's Word, let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, since it is your spirit who breathed out this, your word, we pray that you would send us your spirit in order that we might rightly hear it, that we might rightly receive it, that we might rightly understand and apply it to our lives. We pray that as we do this, And it would be to your glory and praise, for we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear now the word of God. It is written. And Saul approved his execution. That is Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip, When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have been away from our series on Acts for a couple of weeks, so I want to do a brief review before getting to this narrative of this Samaritan man named Simon, who is really the focus of this section of Acts 8. Before our break, Pastor John had led us through the stoning of Stephen and its aftermath, and as Pastor John noted, this is an important moment in the narrative of and flow of the book of Acts. Not only does the stoning of Stephen represent a marked intensification of the persecution of the church, Stephen being the first Christian martyr, but this event also introduces us to Saul, who we see here at the beginning of the of chapter eight and all of his wickedness and rage. Saul is described as perhaps only a approving bystander in the execution of Stephen, but it led to his active leadership and the aggressive persecution of the church that followed. With verse 3 telling us that Saul was ravaging the church, that he was entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. The picture that we have here is not only of a man filled with zeal to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, but it is of a man who is described as being like a wild beast tearing its prey to pieces limb by limb. Saul was breaking into these Christian assemblies, which were gathering in homes, and dragging everyone away to be in prison and perhaps killed. With a sadistic cruelty, he was systematically dismantling the church piece by piece. He became a relentless hunter of Christians, bringing death and misery to the church. And we want to hold this in our minds as we move forward, not just through the next few chapters of Acts, but as we read through all of the New Testament. It is a period to which Saul, who we know better as the Apostle Paul, we'll come back to again and again in places like 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1, Philippians 3. It's hugely significant that this man who is here and at shown to be one of the greatest enemies of the church will be converted to Christ, which we will come back to in just a few short weeks. But also with the stoning of Stephen, the church in Jerusalem was scattered as a fled the escalating persecution. Luke is intentional here in verse 1 to tell us that the apostles would not be driven away, though. They're committed, even in the face of persecution, to holding the church in Jerusalem together. The scattering, though, actually worked providentially to begin to move the gospel beyond Jerusalem just as Jesus had commanded before his ascension to give witness to him, not only in Jerusalem, but in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And this is what we see happening here in Acts 8. We find the gospel being taken to Samaria by Philip, who had been chosen with Stephen as one of the seven to serve the church. Uh, Philip was also a Hellenist Jew, and it makes a great deal of sense that he would... Go to Samaria. You see, Philip might have never felt particularly welcome in Jerusalem as a Greek speaking Jew, and as a Christian, he was certainly doubly unwelcome. But being one who was dispossessed by those in Jerusalem might have provided for him some level of kinship with the Samaritans, who, as we know, were themselves a dispossessed people. The Jews saw them as half-breeds, as those who had been infected with pagan blood in pagan worship through intermarriage with the Assyrians who had defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and carried them off into exile in 721 B.C. The same was not true, however, of the southern kingdom of Judah when they were later defeated and exiled by the Babylonians in 587. There was no intermarriage in Babylon. So when the Jewish people returned from Babylon, they prided themselves on still being pure-blooded Jews. And this caused a deep-seated animosity between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. So perhaps Philip could relate somewhat to the Samaritans. But the message that Philip brought about this man, Jesus, deeply resonated with the Samaritans who had been looking for a prophet like Moses. And Philip almost certainly came to Samaria explicitly proclaiming that Jesus was that man. The fulfillment of what Moses had declared in Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So even as the church scattered, she didn't stop giving witness to Jesus. In fact, the proclamation of the gospel perhaps increased and became even more emboldened. Further, Philip's message was one that discounted the importance of the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, this is the message that had gotten Stephen in trouble with the devout Hellenist Jews in Jerusalem. But this was music in the ears of the Samaritans, right? Remember what the Samaritan woman at the well had raised as a concern with Jesus in John 4. She said, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The temple in Jerusalem was a sticking point for the Samaritans. Philip, though, undoubtedly unfolded for them the ways in which Jesus had fulfilled the place of the temple and negated its importance moving forward. But he was not only proclaiming this message about Jesus. It was coupled with signs that validated the message that Jesus had been raised from the dead and reigns in power as Lord over all. Luke notes for us that demons were cast out. The paralyzed and lame were healed. And look what it says in verse 8. So there was much joy... In that city. This is the result of the gospel taking root in Samaria. It's a result of the gospel taking root anywhere. The result is freedom from oppression of sin and evil. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom to worship and serve God. A sense of belonging in the family of God. The product of which is overwhelming joy, joy had come to Samaria with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this sets the backdrop for our story about Simon. And Luke even gives us a little background information about Simon in verses 9 through 13. Simon is described as having practiced magic. Now don't miss what's being said here. A few weeks ago I was with my family at a local restaurant and after we were seated, one of the hosts came by to see if we needed anything while we waited for our drinks and our food to arrive. And while he was at our table, he began speaking with my children and he told them that there was a magician in the restaurant. And he told them that he would go and see if he could find the magician to bring him to our table. A few minutes later he returned to our table and said that he could not find the magician, and asked if he could do a few magic tricks for them. And then he launches into this magic show. It was quite impressive, actually. We were all amazed, sitting there trying to figure out how he was doing these things. Honestly, I have no idea how he was doing what he was doing. But I was grateful that he had taken the time to stop and... Engage my children, entertain them while they waited for the food to come out. Magicians today are for entertainment, right? We all know that there's some sort of sleight of hand that is going on, but we all love to watch a good magic show. This isn't at all what is being said about Simon here. Simon isn't an entertainer. Being described in Scripture as a magician isn't a positive thing. We aren't talking about pulling a rabbit out of a hat or some neat card tricks. We're talking about practicing dark magic, sorcery it's a practice associated with idolatry in the demonic which is why Deuteronomy 18 strictly prohibits the people of God from participating in magical practices. Deuteronomy 18:10 through 12 says there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or anyone who inquires of the dead. Now listen to this. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. This is how God feels about the practice of magic. And this is what Simon was doing. And he had apparently captivated the people's attention with his dark magic, convincing them that he was some sort of divine man. Luke tells us that he had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And Luke continues telling us they all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. In other words, he was making a religious claim about himself and the people fully bought into this claim because of this power that he had in his trickery. It is unclear what exactly this claim was that Simon made about himself, whether he was claiming to be some sort of heavenly power or some sort of Gnostic being, an emanation from God, or a God himself. What is clear is that he had been fully successful at deceiving the people, bringing them under his spell by his magic. But then, but then Philip arrived. And he came along preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. He came telling about how Jesus is king. A king who humbled himself leaving his throne in heaven and became a servant. A servant even to to death on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. His resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of God vindicated the message he proclaimed about being king over a heavenly kingdom. And when Philip performed powerful signs, giving credence to what he was saying, the people recognized immediately that this man Jesus that Philip spoke of was more powerful than Simon, and that there was something to him. And by God's grace, they were delivered from Simon's deception, and they were Delivered from their own sin. And they placed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they were baptized. Even Simon, Luke informs us, believed and was baptized and began following Philip. This brings us back up to speed on where we were in verse 8. With there being much joy in Samaria. But then there is a strange shift in the story in verse 14, there's this sort of oddity that happens here. These people of Samaria who had heard Philip preach, who had placed faith in Jesus, and yet when the apostles heard of what had happened in Samaria and sent Peter and John to Samaria to examine it for themselves, they found that these people who had placed faith in Jesus had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So we're told that the apostles laid hands on them and prayed for them and that they received the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize at this point, though, that the consistent pattern in Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is received at conversion as a birthright of every believer, not only after an apostolic laying on of hands. Therefore, this is not intended to be articulating that the laying on of hands by the apostles is necessary for one to receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not meant to be read as a normative experience, but as an extraordinary one. The delay of the receiving of the Holy Spirit is not without purpose, though. God superintends the whole thing to accomplish his purposes in the church. What the delay of the Holy Spirit here allowed for was that the apostles themselves were able to come and confirm that the Samaritans were truly regenerate and the spiritual equal, therefore, of the regenerate Jew. And this did two things. First, it preserved the unity of the church across the cultural and religious barriers that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it preserved the church's unhindered advance of its mission across any and all barriers. Thus setting up the gospel being taken to the Gentiles. And while this isn't insignificant, what we want to focus on here is this man, Simon. Who we discover through the apostles' ministry in Samaria to be lacking true faith. The other Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, but Simon proved to be unregenerate. Even though he had previously been said to have believed, his conversion is shown here to be counterfeit. He did not have true saving faith. And we can see the same sort of unconverted belief in other places in Scripture, where there are those who are said to have faith, But it's not true faith, not saving faith. Like in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25, where it is said that many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust them. Or in the parable of the sower, in which one of the four soils, the rocky soil, points to those who receive the word of God and believe. But the word never takes root in their hearts, and they fall away. Or James chapter 2, which speaks of faith without works, which is a dead faith. And Simon is shown here to be in this category of a faith that lacks possessing and being possessed by Jesus Christ. And it quickly becomes apparent that the object of Simon's faith was not Jesus Christ. That- His faith was not in Jesus' sinless life. It's not in Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary death. It's not in Jesus' victorious resurrection. It is not in Jesus as Lord and Savior. What is Simon's faith in? The power of the signs and wonders. To him, Jesus is just a magical name, even if his name is the most powerful name. And this is what Simon has been interested in all along. Power. There's a very illuminating exchange that happens here between Simon and Peter. Luke tells us that when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What Simon wanted was control over this He wanted a share of this power that they possessed, or he thought that they possessed. And what did it show? It showed that he never truly repented of practicing magic. It showed that his mind hadn't been renewed in Jesus Christ. He hadn't acknowledged that it was God alone who had the sovereign power to grant salvation and the blessings therein. No real change had come to his life. He still had the same twisted worldview and he still hadn't renounced his prior practices. He just realized that there was something that was more powerful than what he had. He recognized that whatever trickery he was previously using or whatever power he had access to previously was inferior. This is why he was following Philip around like a puppy. And Peter confronted him about this sin. He said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And Peter instructed him, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter is declaring him here to be unregenerate. Peter saw the poison of the sin that remained in Simon's heart. And he urged him to repent of the sin that held him captive. And how did Simon respond to this? He says, pray for me to the Lord. That nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What's he doing here? He's simply asking to be spared the consequences of his sin. He doesn't pray to have the strength to repent of his sin. He doesn't pray to be forgiven of his sin. He doesn't pray for true faith in Jesus. He just asks someone else to pray for him that he doesn't have to deal with the consequences of his own sin. His response shows no remorse for his wickedness and unbelief. It shows no desire to change. Luke doesn't say anything more about Simon, but church history, which I don't think that we have any reason not to trust, has plenty to say about Simon. Justin Martyr, second century Christian who himself was a Samaritan, records that Simon was empowered by demons to perform magic and was later honored in Rome as a god. Irenaeus, second... Century Greek bishop described Simon as the founder of a Gnostic set And as one quote from whom all sorts of Gnostic heresies derive their origin But what became of Simon is not our concern Our concern is what lessons we can learn from him here in Acts 8 There's three that I want us to consider this morning The first lesson is this If we have ears to hear, then there is persuasive power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fully sufficient to deliver people from the allure of evil and to reorient them to their true need of the one true and living God. For these Samaritans who had been under the enchantment of Simon, the gospel reveals not only the sufficiency of Christ to save, but the deficiency of everything else. In this case, Simon's power and influence. When we hear the gospel and are truly converted, our lives are transformed as the pleasures of the world begin to look strangely dim and a desire grows in us for the things of God. I think it's so important to see what is happening as the gospel goes out. Notice, it isn't addressing people's felt needs. That isn't what is drawing people in. The apostles weren't out there talking about how Jesus is the answer to political oppression or physical ailments or material poverty. They're preaching Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And it wasn't just that people were being healed of whatever was physically ailing them or that they were having demons cast out and for that reason they were placing faith in Jesus. The signs and the wonders that were being done were working to verify the witness that was being given to Christ as authentic. The signs and the wonders were to show forth that Christ had indeed risen from the dead and was reigning in power. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done on Calvary's cross for the sake of our salvation. So the focus was not on healing physical lameness or blindness or illness, but on healing spiritual lameness, spiritual blindness, spiritual illness. The Gospels focused on revealing our most desperate need, our need for God, our need for the forgiveness of sins, our inability to have relationship with God on our own apart from a mediator. It also reveals that all of our problems in life emanate from this one issue, our broken relationship with God. The gospel has a way of revealing our true needs, and it reveals how Jesus is sufficient to meet these needs. And in doing so, the gospel presents Jesus to us in all of his glory and in all of his beauty. He's beautiful because in him we find the image of the invisible God who is just and merciful, and compassionate, and loving, and holy. He is beautiful because He is willingly and joyfully taking on human flesh and making Himself a servant among us. He is beautiful because in Him we find truth. He's beautiful because in Him we see what true humanity really looks like, living in perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father He's beautiful because he was sinless. And yet he offered up himself to suffer and die in our place that we might be freed from our sin. He's beautiful because in him we are brought into the presence of God. He's beautiful because through him we can know God as our heavenly father. He's beautiful because in him we have been freed from death. And our given eternal life. He's beautiful. Because in him we find what our hearts are truly longing for. And when our eyes are open to who Jesus is and the hope that is found in him, it makes all of the desires of the flesh in this world look as they truly are, dim and deficient. And as Jesus Christ in all of his beauty, and all of his preciousness, and all of his power was held out to the Samaritans, any kind of power that Simon had over the people, any kind of allure that he used to captivate the people was no longer attractive or charming or seductive. It was revealed to be seriously lacking. And Luke tells us that the people no longer paid attention to Simon. They were no longer interested in him because they had been captivated by Jesus Christ. This is the difference between Simon and the other Samaritans who truly came to faith in Jesus. While the other Samaritans had been captivated by Christ, Simon was only interested in power. That's what he was obsessed with. That is what he wanted. In the end, he didn't really want Jesus Christ for the sake of having Jesus. His desire and delight weren't in Jesus. His obsession with power had blinded him to the beauty of Jesus Christ. It had blinded him to his true neediness. And this gets to our second point. This passage reveals that we need to be careful about what is the real object of our faith. So what is the thing that your heart truly desires? Is it Jesus? Or is it the benefits of Jesus? And it might not be power that people are interested in. Pastor John touched on this a few weeks ago. Many people want the hope of heaven without Jesus. They want an eternity, a personal pleasure, and Jesus is some afterthought, some magical key to get them there. But the benefits of Christianity aren't just limited to living in the eternal delight and peace of the kingdom of heaven. There are a lot of things that are appealing about the Christian faith, even in a place where faith is met with opposition like it was in the early church. There are benefits to being a Christian, right? yes. Warm fellowship, a place of belonging, a sense of purpose and living in a way that is morally good and worthwhile. Some feeling of appeasement of guilt, inspiration and encouragement in our everyday life, intellectual and emotional stimulation. And let's be real honest, can we? We can get all of these things In the life of the church, in Christian community, without having actually placed true saving faith in Jesus Christ. We can desire the benefits of the Christian life as ends to themselves. And look at what's being marketed to to those who identify as Christians in America. Is it Christ in Him crucified? Is it? Or is it some sort of sentimentality? Some source of inspiration and motivation for living. Some feel-good, be-good, do-good philosophy that could be fully expounded in a ten-minute TED Talk. Does it confront people in their sin? Or is it all about, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me? Cast your cares on God. Be strong and courageous. Your faith can move mountains. what I see a lot of is Scripture ripped out of its context to sell people their best life now in the name of Jesus Christ. You can find your purpose, you can find your happiness, you can find your peace, none of it in actually pursuing Jesus as his disciple. None of it in dying to the self to seek Christ. What is being sold in America is a counterfeit faith. It's a mixing of the Christian faith with what has become the American dream of individualism and consumerism and selling it. Whatever it is that you think you want or need for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's selling the power, as it were. It's selling the purpose. It's selling the happiness. There's no concern for true repentance. You don't have to give up Anything. You don't have to give up your sin. You can be whoever you want to be, and this counterfeit faith will name it, claim it, and baptize it. But here's the third lesson we learned from the passage. Brothers and sisters, a counterfeit faith is sooner or later revealed. The truth will eventually come out. Simon couldn't fake it forever. The poisonous and bitter fruit of his life eventually betrayed what his heart truly desired. What about the fruit in your life? Is there a desire to worship and serve God? Is there a desire to read and study God's Word? Is there a love for God's Word? How about to pray? What is it that truly captivates your heart? is it the beauty of Christ are there sins for which you refuse to repent people you refuse to forgive on the other hand we might do a really good job of hiding a counterfeit faith i think there's some pretty recent examples of that in our culture it could be that we have everyone fooled could be we have our own selves fooled but god is not fooled he knows And we will all answer to him in the end. So if this is you, I want to urge you today to come to Christ. I want to urge you to find him to be more beautiful than all the wealth, all the power, all the glory, all the pleasures that this world has to offer. And as Peter warned Simon, there is a a bitter judgment awaiting all who refuse to accept the free gift of God in Jesus Christ and to submit their lives to him. There is no getting the best of both worlds that does not ultimately result in getting the worst of all possible worlds. Repent and come to Christ. Find in Him your all in all. If you do have faith in Christ, I want to urge you this morning to push further into His beauty. You can always become more captivated with who he is. You will never reach, I can promise you, the end of his beauty, of his goodness, of his glory. You can always stand more in awe of him. You can always grow more in love with him. You can always desire him more. You can always be growing in him in a way that the world continues to grow dimmer and dimmer and the hope of glory grows brighter and brighter. I hope that none of us here ever becomes stagnant in our desire for Christ. As though we could somehow become bored with him. So may the story of Simon encourage us to put away the things of this world and receive the goodness Of what God freely offers us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father give to us true faith. Faith that finds in Christ the greatest treasure. Faith that looks on Christ as most beautiful. And places him at the center of all that we desire. Give us faith that transforms our lives and draws us ever closer to you. So help us to repent of all selfishness and sinful desire. Help us to put away all that is not of you and to pursue Christ. For it's the name, in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I encourage you to stand and let us profess our faith in the one true God. Christians.